Hello, and welcome to Network Collective. On today's episode, we're continuing our deeper look into MPLS. And in this episode, we'll be looking at one of the more common use cases for MPLS, which is the private WAN VPN. So before jumping into our content today, we want to thank today's sponsors. First up is Core BTS. Core BTS is a relationship-focused reseller who aims to help their customers build robust and reliable networks. Also sponsoring today's episode is Cumulus Networks. Cumulus makes the world's most flexible network operating system and helps you build your data center to be as efficient and as flexible as the world's largest data centers. We'll hear more about both of these sponsors later on in the episode. So we're talking about MPLS again today. Um, so we, we did an episode before, right? Episode one, where we talked about a some long, of the fun. A long time ago. A long time that, ago. That was a large amount of latency in that circuit, just to let you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably, probably shouldn't be running any real-time traffic across that circuit. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and, and I think it probably bears worth repeating. I think we should start here uh, because we, we talk about this every time we talk about MPLS and that there is a difference between what the enterprise typically believes MPLS is and what we're talking about. So, Nick, do you want to take this just to kind of level set again? What are we talking about here? Yeah, thanks, Jordan. I think this is an important conversation and it's worth having multiple times is you know, we oftentimes say from an enterprise perspective, oh, I have, a, I have an MPLS circuit and then I have an internet circuit and then I have an LTE connection for backup. And we even say this today, um, SD-WAN uh, vendors, including Cisco and others, will say things like that. I have an MPLS connection, et cetera. What we're really saying though, is I have a connection over a private WAN service that I'm buying from a specific service provider that's giving me network connectivity within my private WAN because those who design enterprise architectures know that there's a difference between our internet edge block and our WAN block, for example, at a large campus. And because those are different things, we can connect our remote sites directly into our private WAN without a lot of the, shall we say, security considerations uh, that exist at the internet edge and at other internet-based uh, transports. The reason I think MPLS gets said is because over the past several years or decades even, when carriers sell us this private WAN service, they felt compelled to tell us the underlying technology that made it work, even though that underlying encapsulation is completely irrelevant to the service being offered. We could just snap our fingers and change the MPLS encapsulation to some kind of IP-based encapsulation like, I don't know, GRE or VXLAN. It doesn't yeah, really VXLAN. matter. We'd be able to provide the exact same service more or less uh, with, with some underlying differences that are only relevant to the carrier. And the reason I go on this monologue is because when we say MPLS, we say it kind of casually, but I think it's important to understand that even if private WAN service becomes less common as a result of new technologies like SD-WANs or the increased availability and performance of the internet, it doesn't mean MPLS as a technology is gonna go away. And I'm sure Russ can talk in detail about some of the work he's done with segment routing and the data center for web scalers. I can certainly talk about some of the MPLS designs that I've done for my specific customer in a place where it will most definitely not be going away anytime soon. So I think it's really just a matter of understanding the context around MPLS as a technology, specifically an encapsulation, and private WAN service is a, a design choice, regardless of the technology used to implement it. And I think we talked about that a little bit last show, but it's, I think it's important that we start with that now before we start talking about what you so correctly called private WAN VPNs, because that's what they really are. Yeah. And, and yeah, Nick, I completely agree with you. We tend to do this because it's a marketing thing. It's like when we first came out with hardware-based switches in our layer three devices, hardware-based routers, we call them layer three switches, confusing everybody terminally forever. Now we still call them switches. <laughs> they're not, they're routers. They're just hardware routers. And so, yeah, we do this. I mean, we tend to 
confuse ourselves by doing this. I think part of it's marketing. I think part of it just sounds cool. Oh, I run MPLS circuits. I can put it on my resume that I run MPLS circuits. When I'm really the customer and I'm just sending an IP packet over from a PE or, you know, something like that over a, a provider edge uh, box of some type. So, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really important to not confuse the concept of MPLS, what MPLS is, and the services that are based traditionally on MPLS. I mean, this would, this would be a good point to also point out. If you're writing a resume, I mean, this is completely sidebar, but if you're writing a resume and you've never typed the word MPLS anywhere except for a description field in an interface, you haven't run MPLS, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, like you haven't run MPLS, you don't know. How to, I, the number of times I've heard this come up where someone has had it on their resume is I know MPLS. You start asking questions about labels and stacks and things like that. And they're like, oh, I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's your friendly tip for the day. That my service provider gave me, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah I paid for a service. Yeah. So, so, here's, so here's, a, here's a single mode fiber. Plug it into your router and put this IP on it. Yeah. Congratulations, you're running on yeah. PLS. You're running on PLS. <laughs> uh, all right. So, so, so I think we learn about MPLS and resume writing at the same time. At the same time. <laughs> I mean, might, as well, might, as well, might as well go all in, right? <laughs> so, we're, so we're talking about VPNs today. Um, I, think we're, I think most people will probably be familiar with Layer 3 VPNs. Maybe we should talk about the difference between Layer 3 and Layer 2 VPNs and, and maybe some of the other VPN technologies that are out there with MPLS. Yeah, I think a high level of a high level of high level description or differences of the two is probably good to kind of start off, um, you know, before we start to talk about some of the technical details. So when we talk about layer three VPN, what we're really doing, and I think the easiest way to describe the difference is just like a, um, let me back up, I'll I'll, I'll describe it a different way. A layer three VPN collapses the entire carrier network. So the entire uh, MPLS network in this case, or even a collection of MPLS networks, if there are multiple carriers and some kind of inter AS arrangement, that whole thing collapses into what looks like one big logical router from the customer's perspective. So one big logical distributed device with tons of interfaces with all thousand of your sites connected to it. And you're just running BGP in what looks like a logical hub spoke topology. The transport between those devices is completely abstract, but when you think about layer three VPNs, you have routed connectivity with the carrier. The carrier transports your routes internal, not necessarily internal to its core routing protocol. We'll talk about how that works with BGP a little bit later, but it carries your routing. Basically, the carrier participates in the customer routing and distributes routes back down to the far side. So it's effectively a router in the middle of your network that you don't control, and it just does routing and, and moves packets back and forth. Layer 2 VPN is almost the exact same description if you just substitute the word router for switch, where that entire network just collapses into what appears to be one big switch with a thousand ports on it, uh, typically within one VLAN, but you can get kind of creative with what appear to be uh, trunk type connections where you can carry multiple VLANs and create different virtual topologies in the carrier ethernet space, we call that service multiplexing. But in either case, one big virtual switch, everyone connects, and now you're not running routing with the carrier anymore, so there are a couple advantages and disadvantages to that we can get into here. Um, so what do you think, Jordan? Was that a, do you think that was a pretty good description? That's yeah, I, think, I think that about covers it. I mean, I don't think it can get any more simple than an unmanaged router or unmanaged switch. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really it, what yeah. it is. I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, yeah. the, the key differentiator being the fact of whether or not you're participating in routing with your upstream. Sure. Like, right. like that's that's the, the big differentiator. I mean, and that, obviously there's, like you said, some nuances that we'll get into with layer two. Um, specifically in how you have to handle, you know, your peering and connectivity because all of a sudden that thing in the middle just looks like a 
big wide open broadcast (laughs) i think think once you kind of you know if you were to draw if you had an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and you were to draw you know a whole bunch of routers connected into a switch and then a whole bunch of routers connected into another router and you looked at these two things side by side if you look at it from that perspective it becomes in my opinion a little bit easier to determine what the design is going to be so the first thing that jumps out to me is if we're talking about trade-offs one big advantage of layer three vpn now this is becoming less and of, a, of an advantage over time, but it's still relevant in many parts of the world is that layer three VPNs are media independent, which means you can connect serial type links or GRE IPsec tunnels or whatever. It doesn't have to be ethernet is basically what I'm getting at. That connectivity between the routers can be any media type. And this can be important if you have lots of remote sites that are maybe connected over T1s and you wanna migrate them off frame relay onto MPLS or you wanna migrate them from, five, from frame relay onto else uh, mpls layer 3 vpns could certainly work there or i guess any type of layer 3 vpn gre based or vxlan based that may even work i don't know i haven't really tried it but being it being generic i know for sure mpls vpns will work with ethernet you have to have a last mile connectivity of course it makes sense the whole network has collapsed into an ethernet switch the same is true for evpn technologies any kind of ethernet based vpn technology layer 2 stuff is going to require that so you may have some constraints on your last mile um, one of the big advantages, though, of Layer 2 VPN is that you can quickly roll out new services between your sites like multicast or IPv6. You don't have to wait for your carrier to support those because it's transparent to them. You can also have a little bit better availability and failover times. For example, if, you're, if your carrier uh, is carrying your routes, that means that if there are, for example, uh, label switch path problems, which we talked about in the last session, if they have label switch problems in their core, all the routing can still work, but the forwarding path will be broken. With a layer two VPN, your customer routing will be broken and you might be able to take an alternate path without some kind of funky overlay or, or anything like that. Um, but then that brings up another point yeah. when you talk about routing right there is that an advantage of layer three VPNs or almost a disadvantage, depending on the way you look at it, is the provider is actually doing routing for you. So that means that the provider is taking all of your routes and doing something with them, but that doing something with them can make it scale better, right? Because they're actually doing something with the routes. They're um, doing route reflection and stuff like that inside their network, which means that they're not sending you as many routes, which means your boxes on the edge could have a lot smaller boxes or whatever that you're dealing with. But on the disadvantage side of that, the router is doing something, or the, the, the provider is doing something with your routes, right? Yeah. And they're not giving yeah, you what... You know, this is an important point when you talk about like a multi-homed, you know, MPLS type design or layer three VPN design. Um, uh, You have to actually influence your upstream about where to send traffic. You have to get involved with these decisions. Now, often they'll help you. Right. So like if if you don't really know what you're doing and you're talking about what you want, um, but as you get into more complicated designs with layer three VPN, you have to start participating in the process of influencing what they can do. And sometimes that can get involved depending on, on how complicated the design is. And so uh, it can, you know, with, with layer three VPN, it can add complexity depending on what you're trying to do and some of those additional things, because you're trying to influence route decisions. I mean, just like we talked about with previous BGP shows on, on how to influence external, uh, entities, you have very few options to uh, to kind of force traffic yeah. the way you want to go. Yeah. Uh, probably a bit easier in the layer three VPN world, but still, it's there. You have to uh, you have to work with them and, and get them sending traffic the right right. right. And and yeah. you'll only get one route most of the time. You won't get two, right? Because that's just the way route reflection works in a provider. It's going to be done on B- over BGP most of the time. So therefore, your convergence time and the way things converge can be different. Um, between L2 and L3 VPN. L2 VPN, you're building the adjacencies over the L2 VPN. So you have control over everything, but 
you have control over everything. Right. I mean, there's a, it's, it's a, it's a question about skill set and ownership and how much work right. you really want to do. Right. Yeah. I, and I had a question. So as we talk about layer two VPNs, what, what do we need to be concerned about as far as risks there? Um, are there, are there risks as far as uh, broadcast domains or anything like that, that we need to think about as we're looking at LTVPNs? From a, from a carrier perspective, I would say the answer is generally yes. Uh, you know, let, let's just say we're going to go kind of, you know, not talk about the new hotness like eVPN, but if we're talking about just kind of traditional multi-point layer two VPN using some kind of VPLS technology. Now, whether it gets signaled through uh, LDP or BGP doesn't really matter, but the general idea with VPLS um, is you can create a flexible topology with it. It's going to be some, either a full mesh or some kind of partial mesh of what Cisco calls pseudo wire. Some other vendors call them virtual lease lines. It's effectively just a point-to-point layer two VPN connection with some other abstractions in the mix as well. But regardless of how it gets signaled, there's always the risk for potential uh, storm type traffic. But the, the idea is that there's a split horizon rule, at least for BPLS, that when traffic comes in it, it you know, from a pseudo wire, or I should say this, when traffic is received from a pseudo wire from remote end of the network, that traffic doesn't get reflected back over all the other pseudo wires. It's effectively, it's kind of like a, an IS to IS mesh group type design where if everyone's in a full mesh, we don't necessarily need to flood the traffic everywhere. I know that's not a perfect analogy, but the general idea is there is that we don't want to reflect traffic back received in from a specific pseudo wire. Now that can be disabled and it makes sense to disable that. For example, in hierarchical VPLS cases where maybe you've got pseudo wire stitching in the core of the network to try to have aggregation. Um, maybe you're willing to tolerate some more traffic in the network along some optimal paths in return for less okay. state at the edge. That's one and duplicate duplicate traffic actually and duplicate traffic awesome. yeah so so there are some risks I think but in general we don't see too many now one thing that could potentially happen is that if customers and this is pretty rare typically when a carrier offers a layer two VPN service there's going to be some very strict MAC address limit on the PE. For example, they're going to say, hey, I can only learn one or two or three MAC addresses on this port. That's going to force you as the customer to plug a router in directly rather than use it to plug a switch in and have a whole bunch of MACs. Because by plugging the router in, you're effectively killing the broadcast domain right right there. Yep. Right. And it's just going to be one big virtual switch that they control that they know is loop free and they manage it intelligently. And then the enterprise customer who may be less skilled just plugs in a router and then there's no problems. Yep. But you can imagine you know, a multi-home site with two links on the same VPLS domain that plug into two switches switches that are bridged and you know you could see the physical loop there and now you're relying almost entirely on spanning tree and whether stp gets tunneled inside of the vpls uh, vpn or not is a kind of a yes no question that the carrier will answer so there are some risks on that especially if you're doing if you're using layer two as your panacea for all your problems which is a bad idea in the first place but assuming you're not doing that which is unfortunately a rare assumption these days um, there's generally not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot of risk there and so another thing you have to be careful of with L2VPN services is that um, your routing protocols convergence, because as Nick said, you're generally going to plug a router directly into this VPLS, this Ethernet um, termination point off of um, the DMARC. And you're going to have a router saying there's going to be running a routing protocol, whether it's the IGRP or SPF or whatever it happens to be. And your routing protocols convergence can get really funky over an L2 VPN because timing goes out the window. It may or may not be a DR situation with OSPF or ISIS. You know, there's all these weird things that go on in these situations that you got to be really careful of and really understand how the protocol is going to interact with it. 
Yeah. And then the last thing I think Russ mentioned this, but it's good to bring up again is I think there's a lot of attraction to, to layer two VPNs for enterprise people because it's like, oh, I can just turn on IPv6 or multicast. I can run whatever protocol I want. I don't have to call the carrier. Um, but keeping in mind, though, that if you're running a thousand routers in the flat VPLS domain for all your branch sites, that's a thousand. You know, of course, there'll be a DR to help cut down on the full mesh of neighborships. And that's yeah. not what the graph is going to look like, of course. But there's going to be, you know, 999 other hello messages you're going to have to process. Um, on that LAN segment. And the, one of the big advantages of layer three VPN is that you just have one BGP peer and you'll receive a bunch of BGP routes for everyone else and maybe right. even some aggregation there. So from a, you know, so again, we're really talking about, do I want all these routers in one big flat LAN or do I want to actually have a virtual aggregation node, effectively the MPLS network in between. And from a purely design perspective, um, I tend to bias toward layer three VPNs unless there's a specific requirement for layer two type stuff in the network. Because, in, you know, even though there are some risks with that, I find that uh, as Russ said, you can keep smaller boxes, lower cost boxes at all the remote yeah. sites, which is a great way to save money. And it can also be pretty consistent because when you add a new site, you don't increase the state on N minus one other routers that now have another line in their OSPF neighbor table for a two wage rather neighbor. That doesn't happen. It just yeah. scales. All right. Well, let's uh, let's step in a little bit deeper. Let's talk about layer three VPN. Let's talk about some of the components that are involved. Maybe talk about how, you know uh, how how maybe a route propagates across the network, and maybe about how how traffic propagates across the network. Yeah, I think the I think the routing piece is particularly interesting for layer three VPNs because what we're really doing is you know the carrier is of course going to have their own core routing protocol, typically OSPF or IS to IS. And I know we talked about this a little bit last time, but it's worth a brief review here. Is that that's going to give reachability between the devices in the PE network, specifically between the tunnel endpoints. And again, I'm using the word tunnel kind of casually here, but between the endpoints, the provider edge <laughs> devices. Should, right? should we have the long discussion about whether or not? Uh, no, I think we'll hijack the whole show if we do. <laughs> basically, it's just like, I imagine we're not even talking about MPLS anymore. We're just talking about a GRE tunnels across the, a core, you know, GRE tunnels across the internet. You know, there's going to be some routing protocol across this big network and getting to the tunnel endpoints between the two, in this case, we call them provider edges, which are the edge routers at the end of the provider's network. It's pretty self-evident. They need to have reachability between one another. And that's kind of independent. That's the underlay routing protocol, if you will, from the perspective of the entire network. Then what we do is we take CEs and they attach into the PEs and they typically run like BGP. You can use generally any routing protocol you want for that. From the PEs perspective, we put that customer in a VRF. So effectively a virtual routing instance where we're gonna learn those customer routes in. They're gonna be logically separated from all the other customers in the network and on that specific PE. Those individual VRFs are indexed by what's called a route distinguisher or RD. What that's used to do is it effectively prepends every VPN route with what is supposed to be a unique identifier so that every different customer has this 64-bit ID to differentiate their 32-bit IPv4 prefix. And of course- Right, which is because multiple customers might give you the same route, like 10110 exactly. slash 24. Yep. Well, in BGP, those would look like the same route because they're all the same AS path, blah, blah, blah. And boom, you've got to have some way of separating those. So that's the route distinguisher. Yeah, that's right. So that's the, the RD basically just, I mean, the reason I, that's part of the reasons I like MPLS so much is because the, na the, the way they name things is so self-evident, like provider edge, it's pretty, you know, route <laughs> distinguisher, you know, I, you know, those, to me, those are terms that are, that tend to make a lot of sense. So I like them. 
other not like as <laughs> opposed to be- like not so stubby stubby area yeah kind of stuff like that except on tuesdays yes yeah, except on tuesdays, yeah. <laughs> that's not a real area russ <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard that landed in a book somewhere or something unfortunately <laughs> um but but that's kind of the, the, the way the last mile connectivity works is you form this bgp session up to this this pe who's going to receive your route and put some, basically put some extra information in it to make it unique make it special the way the PEs exchange routes is using BGP as well. It's a special extension to BGP, uh, formerly called IPv4 VPN. We typically call it VPN before. It takes your IP routes and it really changes two key things. Number one, the next top of those routes, even though the routes were learned inside of VRF, the next top across the network is going to be the remote PE loopback. So you're going to basically be tunneling, again, whether it's a tunnel or not, tunneling encapsulating traffic between these two provider edge networks, encapsulation being MPLS. And the other thing that's interesting is that, as I said, the RD is attached to it along with some other specific community data, um, what's known as the route target. And the route target basically determines what your VPN topology is going to look like. So if you want a full mesh, everyone can import and export the same route target, which basically says the routes I receive are being targeted by everyone else and vice versa. You can create hub spoke networks. Maybe the hub exports route target one colon one. The hub exports it and the spokes import it and vice versa, the spokes export to colon two that the hub imports. And if you kind of draw that out, you'll see that the spokes will not have connectivity to each other, but they'll only have connectivity through the hub. You might be able to use a design like this to kind of force traffic through a centralized scrubbing station or centralized security point, maybe by issuing a default route down from the hub to suck traffic through in a hairpin style. So you can do some interesting designs with MPLS with very little configuration at the edge. Just a little bit of intelligent route target use can go a long way. Um, typically between provider edges, because large carrier networks tend to have hundreds or even thousands of these things, you're going to aggregate those IBGP or internal BGP sessions through what we call route reflection. So you're going to have a centralized control plane node that when it receives routes from all these PEs will reflect it down to all the other PEs. You may deploy these in a pair for availability. You may deploy multiple pairs of them for different address families for even greater availability or less speed sharing, however you want to look at it. That's typically how routes make their way across the network. To sum it up in a sentence, it's an extension of BGP that number one, lets routes be different. Number two, um, makes their hops, makes their next hops in the global table so they can be encapsulated inside MPLS. And three, it gives you flexible topology control with minimal configuration using route targets. That would be kind of my, my one sentence, three bullet summary of how the route propagation works. And, and all of those are basically communities in, by and large. So you can actually look at them, change them, do whatever you know you need to yep. in the provider table. Yep. Yeah, the route targets are just extended communities, which means they can be adjusted at different hops in the network. If you're doing AS stuff, you can do route target rewrites between ASs and do all kinds of fun magic on that. Yeah. So let's talk about actual uh, data path then. So we talked about how the route propagates through BGP, you know, gets encapsulated PE to PE. Um, so data enters the network and hits the PE, then what happens? So when data enters the network and hits the PE, this is the part where I think people get confused about how this whole process works, but it's really just routing. Like you only need to be armed with a very small subset of knowledge, or I should say a small subset of uh thinking processes. I don't want to say commands because I don't want to turn this into a CLI session because it's not, but a certain amount of thinking processes. So when a packet comes in, it arrived on an interface in a specific VRF on the provider edge. Ideally, we should have a remote route learned from the other side of the network. And assuming we're just dealing with a single AS design right now, it'll be an internal BGP route. So if we look at our routing table for that route inside of our virtual forwarding instance, we should have an internal BGP route. The next top is going to be the remote PE, which is in the global table. 
Associated with that route is going to be an MPLS label. And the, one of the coolest things about MPLS, I think, is that we've married up the control plane information and the data plane encapsulation associated with that destination. So the route carries the, des the label that needs to be imposed when reaching that remote destination. So when the router does that route lookup and it says, okay, here's the destination, here's the next stop, and I need to impose, I need to push this label on the stack. And the reason we call it a stack is because it's first in, last out. It's just the data structure where when you add items to the collection, the first one pushed in is the last one removed. So we push this to the bottom of the stack. Then all we need to do, and this is really basic, is we just need to keep looking at the routing table and perform the recursion all the way until we get to a connected route. That's all you have to do. Whether there's two labels or 10, doesn't matter. You're just gonna follow this process n number of times until all labels have been pushed and you recurse to a connected route and, and that's it. So after you have that BGP route, you're gonna have a next hop. The next hop is gonna be in the global routing table. And in a simple design, you look at your routing table for that next hop in the global routing table. It'll typically be an IGP route, let's say OSBF or IS to IS. It'll typically be a, if it's IPv4, it'll be a slash 32 loopback to that remote provider edge. And associated with that, you'll need typically a label distribution protocol or LDP label. Again, we're assuming no traffic engineering or no segment routing, nothing, nothing fun yet. If you have a label distribution protocol label from LDP, it would have come from one of your peers. The path that you're gonna follow is gonna be based on the routing table. So you're gonna impose the label from the neighbor that sent you uh, the label for whichever path you're routing towards. I realize that sounded kind of confusing. So, so yeah, and it's actually simpler than that in the router because the router just does a fib lookup and the IP label it pushes is actually in the MAC header rewrite. So yeah. it just looks like it's just rewriting a new Ethernet header or whatever, a sonnet or whatever the case might be, but it's actually pushing a label when it does it. Now, there are specific hardware label swap options where you can actually take the outer label, swap them or push it or pop it or whatever the case might be that are kind of extra fib handled by the, uh, handled by the label manager and the hardware processing in the box. But at the initial hop, when you do that first IP lookup, it's just doing a Mac at a rewrite and the Mac at a rewrite happens to contain a label stack that's used for forwarding after that. Yep. And once you, and, and like Russ said, once you do all those, uh, uh, the whole thing I just described was kind of that initial control plane look like in order to build the fib, you do what I said, but like Russ said, when that pack, by the time that packet comes in, because the control plane is proactive, we don't need to build a control plane after the packet arrives. When that first packet comes in, this all happens extremely fast because that entire label stack has already been identified. And then again, we do that layer two rewrite and add in the labels followed by the appropriate layer two encapsulation towards the destination and it become a very fast operation once the router goes through internally the route recursion the route recursion lookups and identifies the labels for the rewrite uh, for every for every individual VPN route learned from every customer I want to, I want to take a second cuz I'm just I <laughs> I just it's funny uh, first Nick said we're not talking about the new hotness then Nick says we're not talking about any of the fun stuff. He's completely setting up the next MPL show. <laughs> we talk about traffic engineering. He's like, this is this is a good show, guys, but just wait. Just wait. <laughs> well, and, then, and then we'll end up, I'm sure, doing something on segment routing too, which will be even more entertaining. <laughs> and, and I'm sure we will get into EVPN as well, which, which yes, all those things. Uh, but before we go there, I'd like to take a second. Uh, we'd like to tell you a bit about today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Core BTS, and Core BTS would like to ask you, when was the last time you had a network assessment done? When was the last time you had someone from outside of your organization come in and take a deep and methodical look at the way you run your network? Now, let me share some experience with you. 
we all have blind spots. Now, often these blind spots come from inexperience, but they also come from things like, you know, this is just the way we've always done things. Or maybe it's just not fully understanding the operational benefits of a technology that's come out recently. There's real value in having someone who's not tied up in your day-to-day operations come in, take a look, and provide some suggestions. With the ultimate goal of reducing complexity or increasing operational efficiency, making sure that the resiliency you have in place really is doing what you think it's doing. Uh, or possibly even just finding errors or you know things that are not right in the network that you just might not even be aware of. And so if a network assessment sounds like something that could be valuable to you, you should reach out. And the best way you can do that is via email. And CoreBTS has created an email that should be pretty easy for our listeners to remember. It is network.collective at corebts.com. Again, network.collective at corebts.com. Cumulus Networks is bringing soul to the network. That's S-O-U-L. Simple, open, untethered Linux with the world's most flexible network operating system. For enterprises and cloud environments alike, Linux is the language of the data center. And just like Linux has transformed the server space, it's transforming the network. 85% of IT decision makers say they are still several years away from reaching the full potential of digital transformation, mostly due to their legacy infrastructure, which is complex, proprietary, and difficult to scale. As IT organizations evaluate their environments, they're realizing the need for more flexible networks purpose-built for automation. The demands on the network have never been higher. Organizations cannot afford to waste time with manual configurations that can be automated to reduce effort, improve performance, and increase delivery times. But automating configuration is only part of the battle. Troubleshooting legacy networks is cumbersome and repetitive in most environments. To alleviate this challenge, Cumulus Linux created NetQ, a built-in tool that provides intelligence and visibility across an entire fabric from a single interface. No need to SSH into several devices to track down a MAC address. No more repetitive commands executed hop by hop. Reduce troubleshooting time and improve operational support by querying your entire network with NetQ. Over a thousand customers are transforming their organizations by running Cumulus Linux on over 70 hardware platforms. It's time to say goodbye to soulless vendors with simple, open, untethered Linux. If you want to know more about Cumulus and how to put soul back into your network, head over to cumulusnetworks.com slash soul. There, you can download the ebook and try Cumulus technology for free. So we mentioned earlier in the show that there was uh, some some challenges in, in a re- as it relates to uh, high availability in MPLS, uh, specifically in Layer 3 VPN. So why don't we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, I think this is an important point. Now, Russ mentioned earlier that uh, just this is just kind of a basic BGP thing, and I think we talked about this in the BGP sessions a little bit. But when, it, when a route reflector learns a bunch of routes, and it needs to determine... Uh, it has multiple copies of the same route. So for example, suppose I have a multi-home site. Let's just say, keep it simple. I have one router at the customer edge, two uplinks to the carrier. I'm sending my VLANs, my, my user subnets up to the carrier twice. Those two PEs are going to send both routes up to the route reflector. And let's just say there's one route reflector. Keep it simple. Uh, 
sends it up to that route reflector. And now suddenly the route reflector has to choose between which route is best. And because it's the same customer, both those PEs are using the same route distinguisher, which means the route reflector is going to compare the routes directly because they're the same color. They're from the same organization. It will choose the one that it thinks is best, which is going to be whichever PE is closest to it as a tiebreaker, lowest IGP cost. Right. IGP cost is the primary tiebreaker. So then that's, that's the way all traffic is going to ingress to that node because all the other PEs are going to have the same decision the route reflector does because the route reflector is going to tell them what its best path is. So that can be kind of an obnoxious issue because if that link fails, okay, fine. The network will converge and you will get your backup. Number one, it's going to take a while. And number two, it doesn't give us any options for load sharing. So the simplest and easiest option of this, and this is another reason I really like MPLS, is all you need to do is use different RDs. If you go to those two provider edges on that multi-home node, make one RD, one colon one, and the other one, two colon two, when the route reflector receives the same copy of both routes, it looks like two different routes. It's one colon one colon whatever the route is compared to two colon, two colon, whatever the route is, they look like two different routes from two different customers. They're both marked as best and they're both sent to all the VPN v4 neighbors. When it gets to the remote end, you know, you might be asking, well, how does the PE know which one to import? Because that PE may just have one connection. And let's say it's route distinguisher is one colon one. And this is important to differentiate between the, the role of the route distinguisher and the route target. Remember only the route target determines VPN membership. So if that specific VRF or that routing instance is importing the route target that is carried by both routes, both routes make it from the BGP table indexed by RD into the VRF specific table, and then best path gets run on the two routes. Now, at that point, you can use uh, prefix independent convergence or PIC, as Cisco calls it. I'm sure there are other, you know, BGP fast reroute is basically what it is. Take both routes, make one primary and make one a hot backup. So if there's a problem in the network that that uh, ingress PE that's sending traffic to that dual home site has a rapid backup. You could also do some kind of load sharing where both routes get installed in the router table and there's some kind of source destination hash-based load sharing there. There's a lot of different options, but really what it comes down to is all you need to do is have different RDs for all your remote dual home sites. It doesn't mean every PE needs a different RD because that can be hard to manage. But if you just have two RDs for your whole VPN, you know, one for, let's just call it your primary PE and one for your secondary. And if the carrier allocates that to all its PEs in your specific enterprise VPN, then you can achieve high availability from the carrier's perspective without having to deploy any relatively complex new technologies like, for example, BGP AdPath, which is a new negotiated capability. Um, it, it's generally, I wouldn't say widely deployed today, but it's widely supported. But a few years ago, it wasn't. So solving these problems in a, just a regular IPv4 BGP network is quite a bit more challenging than in MPLS because you have this really simple option to use. So yeah, so a couple of other things about having unique RDs is it also gives you more optimal routing through the network sometimes. Well, I would say probably more often than not in my experience, just depends on the way the pops are set up. But typically speaking, everything's going to go to the same entrance or egress or entrance point, uh, the same tunnel head end or the same tunnel tail end when you run uh, BGP MPLS in your provider network from the provider's perspective. So what this is going to do is it's going to allow the edge devices, the PEs, to decide which is the best path to reach that egress point among the two possible paths. So if there are more than two paths, of course, it may not 
be, you know, you still may not get to the best thing, but this is particularly useful in cases of something like Anycast, where you may have a DNS service that's shared across all of your sites. And if your local DNS server goes down, you want to be able to get to the closest DNS server, not some remote DNS server because it was closest to the route reflector in the service provider's network. So that's another thing it gets you. Another, now there is a trade off though, right? I mean, the trade off is you're sh- shipping more routes to the edge routers. Mm-hmm. doubling the number of routes. So whether or not that's a big deal just depends on where you are in your network, how much, how big a device is that you put out there. Are there little 2501s? I'm showing my age. Or, <laughs> you know, or Cisco 800s? Or are they something bigger, you know? Can you put a larger router out there that has more route table and so it can handle more routes? So this is the part of the trade-off you have to think about when you're doing multiple RDs. Yeah. And even for the carrier, it can become kind of challenging. And this get, this can get really hardware specific, so I'm not going to try to guess. But, you know, suppose you have internet coming in a full table for IPv4, let's say, and it's got a route target of, of 10 colon 10. Well, you know, you can import that multiple times on the router. If I have five customers off right. one PE and they all want a full table, now I have five copies of that table. Now, again, that's a, that's a worst case scenario. There might be some internal optimizations to reduce that within memory and stuff like that. Well, I'm still, I'm still shipping it five times, right? I'm still shipping it. Even if I've internally mem- uh, made it better in my memory and stuff, I'm still shipping it to five different peers. And I'm still like putting that on the wire and managing those TCP connections and stuff. Sure. Yeah. And even if it were one, like even if you, yeah, that, that's definitely true for multiple PEs. And if you had one PE with five customers, you may ship it once, but even you'd still potentially have copies of that routing table and just massive, massive bloat. And I, yeah. I know what you're saying, Russ, you're saying last mile, you're saying from the, yes. yeah, you're absolutely right. Yep. You're still at the ship it five times and, and deal with ship all it that. five times, deal with all that. Yeah. 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 That's quite, that can be quite a load. Um, you know, that's why oftentimes when you offer those kind of centralized internet services, you may offer just default routes. And then if specific customers need a full table, you may have an alternative arrangement for them using some other kind of service or connectivity model uh, rather than bloating your, your MPLS design. Well, I mean, this, this could even be true if you're a retailer and you have five verse per store. So you're shipping or you're advertising five routes per store and you have two or 3000 stores, you're suddenly looking at 10, 20, 30,000 routes, 50,000 routes, whatever it is. And now the provider is still shipping you five copies or two copies or whatever it is and maintaining those. And even from their route reflector down, they're actually shipping two copies of every one of those routes towards the PEs and then out of the PEs and everything. So there are scaling issues here. So a lot of providers are very cautious about when they'll use the multiple RD trick to um, make more optimization and to give you the failover. So... Yeah, you're trading off the state really, and some, yeah. and, and whether you need that failover because in, in many organizations, you know, uh, for, for for a modern IBGP to converge and for those failovers to happen, you know, assuming the last mile connectivity convergence is pretty fast, let's just say, let's say it's a physical Ethernet circuit. So when the line protocol goes down, BGP goes down. You know, there's some withdrawal messages that may take on the order of a few seconds in a modern network. Many customers uh, may, may be okay with uh, having that few seconds of downtime and a carrier yeah. may say, you know, if you need better than the five second downtime we give and you want it to be uh, 500 milliseconds, it's going to cost you massively amount more money in your service fees. Yeah. And a lot of customers may say there's the, the economics aren't there to justify that. Right. So, uh, so what else is, uh, I see some things in here in notes, about other, other handy uses, uh, for all this stuff. What are some of the other, other tips and tricks you have for people, uh, using MPLS? Yeah, this ties in pretty well. I made a comment about internet over MPLS, and this is where I just want to kind of mention something that, 
you know, some smaller ISPs may want to consider. So suppose you're just a, a regular internet services provider. You don't offer, uh, you either don't offer a lot or any business class, private WAN services. Maybe you're just, you've got some kind of, you know, ethernet or wireless based access. It doesn't really matter. But if you're a small ISP and you're just, you just have an uplink to your, let's say you're tier three or tier four, and you've got an uplink to your next higher tier, and that's all you have, you could still consider running MPLS or three VPNs. Here's why. By putting the internet traffic or by putting the internet routes and subsequently encapsulating the traffic inside MPLS, you insulate your core network from any possible problems. Because think of it this way, how can the higher level tier reach into your network or how can internet traffic hit all your nodes when all you're doing is tunneling across them? So effectively, you've created an overlay as a security technique to protect your core from any denial of service attacks that may come from downstream customers into your core, because of course they can't reach it now. And likewise, out from the end, uh, some organizations, you know, in a small, in a very small ISP that may only have one or two uplinks or upstreams, I should say, you might be able to get by with uh, a simple access list. Maybe if your core is well designed and all your core networks fit into some nice summary, you could just deny it and that would be just as good. But for larger networks, just using MPLS, I mean, now you don't have to deal with ACLs or anything and you're guaranteed to not have this problem. All traffic goes across you in MPLS. Just make all your customers hub spoke where the hub is the internet connection up to your upstream and all the customers are spokes. So nobody can talk laterally. They can only talk up to the internet. You very strictly govern what the flows look like and you prevent anyone from reaching into your core with just turning, basically just turning on MPLS and running a big giant HubSpoke VPN. So it's very easy to maintain and it's a design that I personally think would work really well for a lot of small ISPs, especially those that are worried about denial of service attacks against their core without wanting to maintain ACLs and things like that. You can actually go all the way and go to, an, to a BGP free core if you really wanted to using that kind of a design as well, mm-hmm. yep. which can actually reduce your complexity down to a couple of route reflectors or something while also protecting your core. Yeah, um, exactly. There's, there's some interesting things in there. And there's also GMPLS. If you get into the optical side, there are rotoms that will pay attention to MPLS stuff, uh, optical stuff that will pay, optical gear that will pay attention to your MPLS stuff and do offload and, and not really offload, but onboard and on, offboard onto certain wavelengths based on the MPLS labels. So there's a lot of really cool stuff you can do um, by just deploying MPLS, even if you're not offering L3 VPN services to your customers. As a technology, it offers an awful lot to the provider. Right. So this is a good example, kind of what we started with is we're really not doing a whole lot of private WAN here. Like we, we have one big VPN that we're using for a security purpose, but we're really not offering traditional MPLS as it was sold. So like Russ said, you know, this is an example of why I don't think MPLS is just going to straight up die one day. Now, the need for private WAN service may become less common, but there's a pretty good chance that MPLS as a technology is going to be around for a while, both from the security, the BGP BGP free core perspectives, the uh, was it generalized MPLS, light switch path type craziness that I haven't personally worked with, but I know it's really cool. All that kind of stuff, I don't really see it going away. So we talked about bloat a couple of minutes ago. So, I mean, is there any implications there when we talk about internet and MPLS, uh, our unique VPN? Um, as I, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically around the idea of full tables, right? I mean, if you're sending defaults, it's all pretty, pretty straightforward. But if all of a sudden we have a MPLS uh, VPN and, you know, 20 customers all receiving the routes from it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I'll give you two answers. So the first answer is for, for a small type ISP like that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of making an assumption that there aren't a lot of customers that want full table. It's probably mostly consumer and small business type internet, but suppose that we did, 
Um, there's a couple of ways we can go about that. You know, we can put all the customers in one in the same. So if I have a PE with 20 customers, I could just put them all in one VRF and through some simple access lists, maybe just prevent all the transit traffic. Um, or, you know, if they're running BGP with me, uh, one really easy trick I could do, you know, assuming that um, assuming they all had private ASs or something, I could just give all my customers the same private AS so that AS path routes would never go back and forth. That would prevent the crosstalk from the customers and it would still allow me to keep all of them in the same VRF. Um, another option, which I, I haven't seen it deployed in real life, but I played around with it and I liked it, was called half duplex VRF. Now this isn't like CSMACD type half duplex, so don't don't think I'm bringing, taking it back. Um, <laughs> Cisco calls it that. I'm sure there's other names for it, but basically what you do is on a router, you can identify both an upstream and a downstream VRF. Um, the idea is it is that multiple sites need to access kind of a central site um, and the lateral connectivity can kind of be governed by the combination of the two VRFs. So it's, it's kind of hard to describe the best, the, the most appropriate description I can think of would be like VLANs in a sense, where you have kind of a primary and a secondary VLAN and that helps govern, okay, we're in the same downstream VRF so we can talk, but everyone's in the same upstream so we can all reach the same upstream resources. To be quite honest, I'd have to go back and like set it up again. It's been about three years. This is, this is very similar to a frame relay circuit is what it is, right? Yeah. Where, the, where the, sp the hub can actually broadcast to everybody, but the spokes can only talk to the hub or through the hub as the case might be. Yeah, I think there. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, that's generally kind of how it works. I want to say there might be some local connectivity between certain communities that have the resources. So I, is Nick I, old I, enough? Is Nick old enough to have <laughs> interacted with Frame Relay? Did you use a Frame Relay reference? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what we what what is real today. And I think uh, Jeremy Philibin mentioned this in a Packet Pusher podcast a few years ago. Is that we see Frame Relay used as the it's not the not as the like frame relay switching technology, but as a serial encapsulation over direct circuits like DS3s. Because if you do frame relay encapsulation on a back-to-back -back circuit, now you can virtualize the circuit with DLCs. So just like Ethernet VLANs, if we run frame, if you run PPP or something, you can't do that. We'd have to use like GRE tunnels or something stupid. But right. if we're running, think like a, a customer that needs three VRFs extended up to a carrier and it's a DS3, do encapsulation frame relay, match the DLC on both sides, turn off LMI, and now you have effectively the equivalent of a trunk with three VLANs, except it's yeah. not Ethernet. And, and for our next show, we're going to talk about cool uses for X25. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, right. just, Nick just made an absolutely good use case for using frame relay. Yeah, well, I'm a little dumbfounded at the moment. Yeah, Jerry it years ago, and I remembered it, and then I saw it in production, and we actually use it today. <laughs> it works okay. It's a Verizon circuit. So that, that makes complete sense. Complete <laughs> sense. There you go. Oh, so that oh, works okay. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> uh, any other any other cool tips and tricks? I've seen here multi VRF per customer. I mean, I think we talked a bit about this earlier, but yeah, that was kind of the you know, like just said the D, the you know the DLC thing is how you do it with uh, with with serial circuits. I think the more obvious answer would be you know if you have a customer that requires multiple VRFs, let's say it's a small number. I've got a uh, let's, let's say all my re let's just you know I'm a retailer and for all my sites I you know at all my remote stations I want to have all my point of sale systems in one VRF, so my cash registers or whatever they're in one VRF, and that needs to be logically isolated all the way across the LAN back to the data center. Uh, and then I have maybe just administrative workstations, you know, where the manager sits and does email, whatever. And maybe that's a different VRF. So every remote site just has two VRFs times a thousand sites. So that means a carrier, let's say they're Ether, a combination. Let's, if it's layer three, again, this is the advantage of layer three VPN. 
The last miles can be a combination of Ethernet, let's just say Ethernet, T1s, DS3s, whatever. I can use a combination of frame relay encapsulation for, um, oh, excuse me, uh, frame relay encapsulation for the DS3s, uh, VLAN encapsulation, .1Q for the Ethernet circuits, whatever. Um, extend those multiple VLANs back. I can have two different VRFs, one for uh, retailer, uh, retailer point of sale and retailer admin. They both go back to the data center. I maintain that multi-tenancy all the way into the data center and everyone's happy. Um, something else I think is worth discussing just briefly is what happens when the customer has 20 or 30 or 100 VRFs they need extended. So now we're not talking about a retailer anymore. Maybe we're talking about uh, some other organization, you know, uh, maybe multiple large offices that have engineering, finance, sales, all the functions of a business spread across multiple headquarters. So this might be an enormous company like, I don't know, General Motors. Um, you know, a company that has almost a million people working for it, something like that, that you might need a lot of logical separation over a huge number of sites, something like that. You would just, just, you know, think about a much larger scale design, something like carrier supporting carrier, where you take the MPLS VPN design and you make that um, kind of hierarchical in a sense. So imagine that we're General Motors now, and in each of these big sites, we have a hundred VRFs each. The service provider, let's call it Verizon, just to pick a big one. They may say, you know, we don't offer 100 VRFs. We only offer up to six. Um, so you're going to have to figure something out. What we can do is between the core carrier, which is Verizon, they're the one with the global presence of the network. You can run MPLS from provider edge to customer edge, basically extend MPLS down to the customer's network. Then the customer runs their own MPLS network, you know, kind of hierarchically. So if you want to think about the customer is kind of this is big wide MPLS network that spans over the top of the carrier, which means the customer can run however many VRFs it wants over that one BGP session up to the carrier. So massively scalable design this way, the customer can control its own VRFs and manage these services internally. You could also potentially see this, although I've never seen this in, in real life, is a second tier carrier might be using a, a, a backbone carrier for transport between its pops, just in, if it didn't have its own core transport, it would be offered and would be able to offer VPN services to its customers completely transparent. The only, the only real, I mean, there are multiple disadvantages, but really from an encapsulation standpoint, it's a four byte penalty, one additional label, because now you have additional level of abstraction. Every MPLS encapsulation really boils down to a level of abstraction and you can scale this design infinitely. You can stack carriers multiple times, although typically it's not done more than twice. Um, this would just be an example of how you could scale layer three VPNs or MPLS designs in general to meet really massively scalable, uh, quantities of VRFs at a global scale. I think that's a, a good spot. I think uh, we should, yeah. probably, should probably close that now. We just yeah. we just lost Yvonne. Bye, Yvonne. <laughs> Bye, Yvonne. <laughs> she dropped off. So, uh, so you get to tell people where they can find Yvonne, Jordan. Uh, uh, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> At Sharp Network on Twitter. Uh, Sharp.net. Sharp.net. You can find yeah. Yvonne there at esharp.net, always at the Network Collective. I think that about covers it, right? <laughs> yeah. I think so. And Network Collective. And Network Collective. Uh, so, so, Nick, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nick Russo42518. And that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. My website is uh, pretty basic, njrusmc.net. I try to make it useful and simple. So, please have a look at that and let me know. I saw there was a big release, like version two, man. Oh yeah, it's a yeah. Well, yeah, it's all. <laughs> I wrote it in HTML using Vim, so it's not terribly exciting. <laughs> it's efficient, though. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of resources. Very likely, <laughs> low cost. 
Yeah, yeah, cool. If you're one of the few people out there still using frame, frame relay for access or dial up, yeah. you'll be it's a golden two <laughs> G cellular. It's your best friend. <laughs> Fantastic. So Russ, how about you? Where can people find you? Uh, rule eleven tech. Um, I actually logged into Twitter four times this week, Jordan. Wow! No, we, we are we are changing you. We are. Changing. I didn't. I didn't count. I actually don't know how many times I logged into, but I logged into Twitter. It's it's astounding. So now you can now you can try. Now it's like it, it's a bit of a, a bit of roulette to figure out whether or not Russ will actually see your message. <laughs> you something on Twitter. It's even less defined now. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> Before it was definitively no. Now it's now it's kind of. Yeah, in between. So yeah, it's, it's at Routing Geek at um, Twitter, and you can always find me at the Network Collective and LinkedIn, and but not Facebook still. No, your, uh, and your website Rule11.tech. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Uh, I'm at BC Jordan on Twitter, jordanmartin.net. Uh, if you like this episode, you want to find previous MPLS episodes, previous deep dives, history of networking, all kinds of great content at thenetworkcollective.com. If you want to chat with us, you can uh, hit us up on social media at NetCollectivePC on Twitter. Uh, we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn, uh, wherever you like to chat. Uh, just want to say a quick thanks to everyone who came by and said hello at Cisco Live. It was great meeting so many of our listeners there. That was a lot of fun. So this will be the first show that comes out. Uh, first community roundtable show. First one we recorded after Cisco Live, I should say. Uh, so I wanted to uh, just send out a quick thank you to those. Uh, if you want to go Which deeper. Which is why we're all exhausted still. Yeah, <laughs> you can't tell as yeah. I'm nodding off here. <laughs> uh, if you want to go deeper into the conversation, we'd love to have you come uh, join our membership site. Uh, more information, of course, at the networkcollective.com. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>